0: If you're new to Calvary Bible Church, you may not know what was coming today. But uh, if you've been here a while, you know it's kind of our tradition because a lot of people are traveling and on vacation. Some people are here on vacation and some people have left on vacation and, you know, it's kind of hard to get them to miss something. So uh, usually we ask for Bible questions from the congregation. They submit those to the office or put them in the offering plate and, and then uh, we kind of organize them and then I answer as many of them as I can for over a couple Sundays. So uh, this is one of our traditional question and answer Sundays, so we'll just be all over the map as you will see and uh every year just so you know about half the questions that are asked are questions that are asked every year so i have answered those questions and you can go on to our website uh, calvarybiblechurch.org and you can go to sermons question and answers download those sermons and listen to them I've even, I've even answered some like two or three times, so you can get and, you know, find out where I contradicted myself. Uh, but yeah, there's, um, there's information, and then even if, uh, you know, you can't find that and you want an answer, you can always uh, talk to one of the pastors or elders, and we'll try and get you that answer. So we want you to have the answers to your Bible questions, and, uh, and uh, we're not trying to hold out on you. But let's pray, and then we'll get into our uh, many uh, questions and answers for this morning. Father, we come before you as a people, grateful that we can worship in this place in peace, that we can, by your grace, um, sing songs to you, give to you, fellowship with one another, hear your word preached, and Father, all the other blessings we have, sit in cozy pews, and it's just very peaceful. We're thankful for the peace that we have um generally in our country and and father we just think of all the nations around the world who are rioting i think there's five or six countries now who have decided mostly among the youth that rioting is a good thing and plundering is a good thing and father this is all a demonstration of what happens when people reject you as their god and reject your truth as their standard And Father, we know that our country is really not much better or any better at all, and that any time we could have riots breaking out here, and the peace and the comfort we now enjoy might be gone. And yet, Father, those people need Jesus, and we are the ones who have the gospel. So may we not uh, bury it uh, in the ground, but Father, may we live it, may we speak it, May we be bold to take opportunities and pray to have opportunities from you so that we can declare your truth and, Father, that sinners might be saved. Father, we know that any day we might be with you. And so, Father, we look at the world and are grieved at all that is going on, but may these trials and may these... Um, riots and bombings and all the things that are going on just be a wake-up call to many that we have lost our moral compass because we have je- rejected jesus christ as our lord and savior so father may we be part of the solution and may we fix our hope on you not on our government or laws or police but father on you alone and father may you receive all the glory and honor and praise as we do that we pray in jesus name amen well, uh, when we get, I get uh, questions. Actually, Ruth gets them and she compiles them into this big list and they're just all over the place. I kind of go through and kind of organize them into groups so that uh, hopefully I can answer them in kind of little clusters of related things. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to start out with some questions related to the Bible. These are going to have some pretty short answers to them, but they're just things that people ask. And so I thought, well, they're all in this category, so we'll go ahead and go for it. But um, uh, the first question is this. Why does the English Standard Version of the Bible not capitalize the pronouns for God and Christ? And so when when it's speaking of God and Christ and it says, you know, he or him, it doesn't have it in capitals. And they're asking why that is. Well, the basic reason is that it's just a stylistic preference. The ancient manuscripts kind of come in two forms, which are kind of interesting. One is all capitals. So every Every letter of the Greek, you know, manuscript is all capitals. So in that case, if you followed the Greek, you would have all capitals. And uh, other ones are hardly any capitals at all. So uh, they're not, the capitalized pronouns are not inspired. Not only that, but um, what... What's the difference between Greek and English is is Greek is an inflected language and though there are pronouns that that are standalone pronouns that aren't capitalized but they're also kind of endings and beginnings of words that indicate pronouns and of course it's very hard to you know, capitalize those or not. I mean, they aren't in the Greek. And so it's just something that uh, certain people, certain publishers have done and, uh, and not others. So it's not a matter of inspiration. It's a matter of publication. So there you go. That's why those pronouns aren't capitalized. Secondly, who arranged the books of the new Testament? And why was Matthew first? And this is very interesting um, if you uh, first you need to understand that when we talk about the books of the New Testament we're really talking about the scrolls of the New Testament early on uh, before you didn't have books like this this was a later invention and so you would have a scroll and so you would unroll one part and roll up the other or go that way or this way or whatever you have kind of have two um, pins and you would roll it either way or just kind of there was no formal pin; You could just roll it around. That's how you would get around. So uh, let's just say you were an early church, you were one of the early churches. And you know, ha- you, the, the books of the New Testament are being written. And you're in one of the cities. And, and let's say you have 11 of the New Testament books, the inspired books. So what does that look like? It looks like a pile of scrolls you know, in a box or something. I mean, that's what you have. You don't have a book. So when you talk about arranging, well, it's whatever scrolls on top you know, is the arrangement. So uh, just so you know, um, there's no official organized method. There is a chronology in which the books were written, but we don't even know what that chronology is. We can be kind of certain about when books are written, but we don't know for certain. Early Latin versions uh, of the Bible, kind of in Bible form, kind of, kind of in book like this, um, uh, in the 5th century ordered the Gospels Matthew, John, Luke, and Mark, the Syriac Peshitta places James first Peter and first John immediately after Acts, and before the rest of paul 's letters, one early edition ordered paul 's letters according to length, so they had Romans and then they kind of combined i think first and second or corinthians and and put those, and then kind of had every book according to size from big to small, which um, okay uh, when Luther translated the Bible to, into the common language of the people in German. Uh, really it was the first time people kind of had their own versions. Common people could afford to get their own Bible. Um, Because before that, they were big, elaborate things that only the clergy and very rich people had. And so he ordered the books like we have them in our Bibles today. And you say, well, you know, why did he put them that way? Well, just for studying purposes, he put all the Gospels together, which are about the life of Christ. And he put them all together and up front because they come before the church. Uh, secondly, um, you have the book of Acts, which is kind of a historical book, which gives you the transition kind of from after the death of Christ to the establishment of the church kind of gives you the history of, of Paul and Peter and, and their ministries and the establishment of the church. Then you have Paul's letters to specific churches, which would be Romans to Second Thessalonians. And next you have Paul's letters to people, First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon. And then you have what are called the general epistles and that would be hebrews through james we don't know who wrote hebrews some think it's paul some say it's not Uh, we don't know um the point is is that because uh it was unknown it was put it was one of the bigger books it was put up front and then you just have all these other they're called general epistles because they're written by peter or john or james or whatever they're they're not written by paul and finally, you have the book of Revelation, which just kind of goes at the end because it speaks of the end time. So they put it at the end. So it's just kind of a logical classification, not an inspired classification. Uh, related to that is another question. When did they make the 22 books of the Old Testament into 39 books? And uh, if you don't know this, um, there is uh, a early Jewish historian named Josephus, and he lived during the time of Christ, and there was a mention in one of his writings that the Jews believe there were 22 divinely inspired books. Today, if you look at a Hebrew Old Testament, you'll see there are 24 books, and you may wonder why that is, um, you know, what? what is it about that? Or, you know, there might be uh, times where, well, Josephus says there's 22, and other versions there's 24. And then there's still other versions that kind of have the 39 because they kind of follow after the English. And you're going, well, what is this? Well, this is what it is. Um, they combined First and Second Samuel, and they combined First and Second Kings, and they combined um, uh, the the 12 minor prophets. So a lot of those first and second books, they combined them. And then they also um, think that when Josephus talked about the 22 books that they put Ruth uh, and attached it to Judges. If you've ever read the beginning of Ruth, it says, and it was during the time when the Judges reigned. So they go together well. And of course, Lamentations is about Jeremiah lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. So they attach that. So they think that's what happened. And that's why there's 22 books. But the content is the same. They've just combined things into one rather than into two and into groups. And, and of course, they arrange them in a little different order. Um, why do they continue to put the end of Mark, Mark 16, 9 through 20, in the Bible um, if Mark didn't write it? So turn to Mark 16. This is kind of an interesting little um, bit of information that you might not know about or you might. But turn to Mark chapter 16. There are uh, – what happens is, is, is a lot of times there are people – who, when they're translating the Bible, they don't have all the manuscripts before them. This is true with like the King James translator um, with uh, Tyndale who wrote the Bible in English. By the way, 90% of Tyndale's Bible is the King James Bible. So it's really not the King James. It's really the Tyndale Bible, slightly modified by 10%. Um, And so Tyndale uh, didn't have all the ancient manuscripts. He only had some. And uh, so if you only have some what they call earlier manuscripts. An earlier manuscript is one closer to Jesus' time. A later one is closer to our time. If you only have the earlier ma- or the later manuscripts and not the earlier ones, so maybe from the 500s, 600s, or whatever, you might be able to. You might find that there is an ending. At the end of Mark, which is different than one earlier. And that's exactly what happens. Verses 9 and following do not appear in any of the earlier manuscripts, the oldest manuscripts of Mark's gospel. Well, then you say, well, so why are they there? Well, because look at verse 8 of Mark 16. You're reading along, you're, you're getting to verse 8. And they went out and fled uh, from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid it's like well what's the deal come on give us some more i mean you can't just stop with they were afraid that's kind of broken i mean it just seems like is that it is that it is it gonna end there so it it ends in a very weird way you say well why did that happen i don't know maybe they did have an ending and it was at the end of a a scroll that got wet or something and washed off or you know cockroaches ate it i don't know um but None of the older versions have it on there. So some later versions, then it started to pop up. Actually, several endings of the book of Mark popped up. And it just so happens the King James Version kind of used this one. And, you know, to some people, if you you deviate from the King James, I mean, you have a heart attack. So the question is, so why is it here? Well, one thing is to please men and two, to make absolutely sure. But for the most part, we pretty much know that it doesn't belong in there. But imagine what would happen if you're sitting down with somebody and he's got the new King James and you've got one of your modern versions and yours stops at verse 8 and he goes from 9 to 20. Or if you look, I have the NSB, it has verse 20, as has a couple different versions of verse 20. Um, there, it's kind of, there's all these different ways. Well, you say, well, what's that? You know, how come your Bible left some out? So what they did is they leave it in there and they put a little bracket. If you look at verse 9, if you have a little translation of the Bible, it should be a bracket there, maybe a one, a footnote that says uh, later manuscripts add verses 9 through 20. In other words, early manuscripts don't contain them. So that's it. What's also interesting is some of the weird groups take their most foundational doctrines from this portion of the Luke 16. Like the hyper Pentecostal, charismatic, snake handling churches. You've probably noticed we don't handle snakes here during the service. And uh, yet some do, and they take that out of verse 18. They will pick up serpents and and drink any deadly poison, and it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. recover. So what's interesting is, is you go to those churches, and they love to play with snakes during the service, but they don't drink any deadly poison, and they can't heal the sick, which is kind of odd. They just use it as an excuse. So anyways, that's um, uh, why the end of Mark is there, uh, just to make, I guess, extra careful and to give an explanation and put it there. But if you have a, a literal translation of the Bible, there's always footnotes telling you about those things. All right, now we're going to move to a different category called the uh, on uh, the doctrine of man and sin. There were several pretty fun questions that were kind of related to this. Is there a difference between sin and iniquity transgress- and transgression? And uh sometimes the words appear in the same verse. And this is true. I looked it up. There are actually seven verses in the New American Standard Version of the Old Testament that contain all three of those words. Exodus 34, 7. Leviticus 16, 21. Ezekiel 21, 24. Psalm 32, 5. Isaiah 59, 12. And Daniel 9, 24. Also, uh, Jeremiah 33, 8 has all three words, but a couple are verb forms, a couple are noun forms. So turn uh, to Psalm 32, verse verse 5. We'll use this as our just kind of example anchor text so you can see how they're all three used, that they're used interchangeably. And um, they all pretty much have um, um, the same uh, meaning in one sense. They're all talking about sin in general. uh, But uh, look at Psalm 32. This is one of the great Psalms of confession and repentance and God's forgiveness. And if you look in verse 5 of Psalm 32, David says this, I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. So... Um, here you have sin, iniquity, transgression, and then sin again. So let's talk about each of these words. The word sin is a word, translated sin here, is a word that means to wander from the path, to deviate from the course, to miss the mark, um, to fail to hit the bullseye of uh, perfect obedience to God's law. So that's what that's talking about. A good text that uh, helps illustrate that is Judges chapter 20, verse 18, uh, where the verb form of the word appears... And listen to how it's used. Out of all these people, and speaking of these uh, soldiers in the tribe of Benjamin, out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. So the not miss there is to not sin, to not miss the mark is what it is. So that gives you an idea. Now you might be wondering uh, how the sons of men- Benjamin got 700 men who are such expert uh, you know sling throwers and could hit a hair and not miss and uh, this wasn't part of the question it's just extra fun for free Um, but at that time what happened is is uh, you had a sling let's talk about slings first they weren't sling shots uh, like we know to know them a fork or something Uh, what you would have is you'd have a a couple leather uh, thongs sometimes braided or whatever with a little leather pouch at the end that was kind of tucked up at the end and uh, one might be longer than the other and you might wrap it around your hand a couple times that would be one thong then you would put a stone into the pouch and grab the other end with your thumb and your forefinger you would then wheel it around like this and get good centrifugal force and with the force of your arm you can hurl a stone really hard deadly hard this is how david killed goliath and so they had 700 men who could hit a hair. And you may think, well, man, that doesn't seem very accurate. It is. If you practice for a while, you can get really accurate. You know, you could pop off Coke cans, no problem, off a fence rail, no problem. So these men were deadly accurate with their slings. So that's what the whole sling thing is about. Now, you might ask, ask yourself, why were these men choice men, Uh, if they were left-handed and they could throw a sling. And this is the cool part that I'm just throwing in for free. And I'm not even going to charge you for this. Um, At that time, all cities were pretty much built on hills. They were built on hills. Remember Jesus said, you know, a city set on a hill. Well, They're all on hills. Why? Because they were more protected then. If you're going to attack a hill, you had to go uphill. It's always safer to be on higher ground because you can defend yourself. So they were walled cities built on hills because it's very difficult to go up a slope and then get to a wall and attack the city. So it was the safest way to do it. And if the hill was very big, they always had a road leading up to the main gate. That, that road uh, always went up spiraled uphill to the left. And that road was called a glass sea. And you say, well, why was it called a glass sea? Well, because they would get stones, they would make the pavers smooth, and it was not only tilted, obviously, downhill, but away from the top of the hill, so it kind of had a double camber on it a little bit, and they would put sometimes oil on that. You can imagine trying to hike up a road to attack a city on a smooth, slippery road. That would be difficult, right? Not only that, most people are right-handed or left-handed? Right-handed. So if I'm going to go up and I've got my shield in my left hand, my sword in my right hand, and I'm going up the hill this way, and the city's this way, what do I expose? My whole body. So then I have to do is I have to put my sword away, hold my sword or my shield with my good hand, and then try to fight with my bad, you know, like a girl. <laughs> do not do that. Okay, so that's how it was. You know, I mean, uh, I mean, it's just bad. I mean, if you know, if I ever try and throw a ball with my left hand, it's like, Phew. you know, it's like what happened? You know, it's just it's broken. It doesn't work that good. So, all cities had this kind of technique because they knew most people were right-handed, they're all going to be holding their their shield with their good hand, and then they have to fight with their, their sissy arm. So now you've got 700 men who are left-handed who can hold the shield with their bad arm and with their accurate hand can knock somebody in the head and kill them. Anybody who pokes their head up on the wall, they got them. They were the SWAT team of Israel. Do you remember when do you remember when Jacob is giving his 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 kind of uh predictions of each of the the his sons in Genesis 49 and he kind of predicts what they're going to be like. In Genesis 49 verse 27 this is what Jacob says about Benjamin. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning he devours the prey and in the evening he divides the spoil. And so what happens is, um, Benjamin becomes this military kind of uh, force within Israel, and they've got 700 guys who are deadly accurate. They even We even know that they would take people who are right-handed and strap their right hand onto their leg so they couldn't use it all day long, so they would become left-handed because it was such an advantage in war because you had to go. up. Now, all that was free added to the question. Let's go back to the word sin. Uh, which means to miss the mark. Point made. And then the second word, iniquity, is a word that describes sin as deserving punishment. When you do something that deserves punishment, um, that's what the word iniquity basically means. So anytime uh, you do something that deserves the judgment of God. The word actually means to bend, twist, or distort. So when you distort God's truth, you bend God's truth, you then you have violated the law of God, you deserve judgment. And finally, there's the word, uh, translated transgression, and it means really to cause a breach ...or a fracture in a relationship so that there is war or enmity or strife uh, between two parties. And so all three of the words, though, describe sin. They're just synonyms for sin, but each one has a little bit different root meaning. There you go. Secondly, if someone asks you a question and you phrase your answer in such a way that it is truthful... ...but you know is misleading to them, is that a sin? Now, oh, this is such a good question. I love questions like this. Um, so I heard somebody say, yes. Um, well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. Now, I'm not using situational ethics here, but I am saying that according to the Bible, certain situations allow for certain things and other situations don't. You know, let's just say, you know, a dad's got three kids, you know, in grade school or whatever. And, and he says, okay. He says, we're we're almost through running our errands. We don't have time to get groceries, but listen, what we're going to do is we're going to take mom out to dinner. Don't tell her. So when we go home, don't tell mom we're going out to dinner. So again, we're going to surprise her. So the kids go, okay. Okay, we're going to surprise her. So anyways, dad and the kid come home after doing errands, and, uh, and the mom says, uh, hey, where, where's all the groceries? And the first littlest kid decides... I'm going to use evasion. He doesn't know what he's using. It. He says, mom, we saw the coolest car wheels out there. It looked like this. It looked like that. And she turns to her daughter, so where are the groceries? And the daughter says, well, mom, we didn't get the groceries, but we got a lot of the things done that we needed to get done. And then the husband steps in and says, well, we decided we'd all go out and get groceries now together. Now, it's true, they're going to get groceries, but they're really going to go take her out on a surprise trip for dinner, and then they're going to go to get groceries after. So, in a situation like that, is anybody sinning? No. But truth is being withheld. But not for any sort of wicked purpose or, you know, gaining some advantage, but actually to bless somebody. I show up to church some Sunday, a lady with a very ugly dress comes up to me, and she says, Pastor Jack, how do you like my dress? <laughs> now, should I be truthful with her? That thing's dog ugly. Did you find that in the trash can? I mean, you know, is that what I say? Do I tell her my opinion? you got to be truthful. You've got to be truthful. Well, listen, you know, my opinion's not worth much. God hasn't sent me to proclaim my opinion. And so I think, you know, I want to edify this woman. so I try to look for something positive to say, so, Oh, is, is that a? Is that cotton? I really like cotton. Um, maybe I throw in, you know, oh those little tiny spots on there. I love. I love the color of those. Those are good. Those are good. Those are good. Uh, you know, maybe I do a little evasion added on the end. So did you did you make that or did you get that on sale or you know? So I don't have to say, your dress is ugly, get out of my side. You know, uh, I don't have to say that because uh, it's just my opinion and it's subjective and it's not very important. It's a lot bigger deal than like the truth of the scriptures or something of more weighty matter. Not only that, there are a lot of sports and games where the whole, a lot of times you either use deception part of the time or the whole game is based off of deception. You know, you've ever tried playing a card game and showing everybody your cards? Now I just want you to know, we're, we're playing poker here. Now, here's my cards. It's like, you know, it wouldn't work, right? The whole game is based off of I've got information. I'm not telling you what it is. And so I am doing stuff and you're trying to figure out, yeah, the whole purpose is to gain an event because you're in the context of a game. A game. And so, in that situation, you know, football teams sometimes line their guys up in order to make the other, their, the other team think they're going to do one thing based on how they've structured their men in the lineup. And, and so when the ball is hiked, they think they're gonna do this and they might do something else. They're deceiving in order to gain advantage because it's a game. Uh, When I was first married, we lived with another couple, and there were times where it would be kind of boys against the girls, and me and the other guy would—I had told ourselves that when you enter into the whole realm of games, there's really, you know, you become kind of into this all-moral situation that is beyond the grasp of Christianity. And so we would do things like put cards in our toes and slide them under the table. And the girls would go, man, what are you doing, man? We can't believe the cards you guys are getting. There. How do you guys do that? You know, we had these little systems we did. And then at the end, we'd tell them we've been cheating. <laughs> it was very fun to just beat them thoroughly in an unjust way. So, you know, do you go to hell for that? I don't. Uh, it's, it's just kind of fun in games. But let's talk about something more serious. And this is related, this is just actually a question, another question that was answered that relates specifically as an example to what we're talking about. Is it a sin for law enforcement agencies to use deception or to gain information? Can the law enforcement agent go undercover? And this is merely the example of what we just got through talking about. It is a specific situation in which deception and lying are often used To find out the truth. You know it would be great. If you could just go up to a criminal and say. Well just tell me the truth. And they say okay. But of course they're lying. As a matter of fact. Everybody lies to some degree. And unbelievers lie usually to a lot degree. I mean, you know, any of you who work in a secular work environment know you've seen people just lie all the time in order to gain advantage. They lie to their boss. They lie about statistics. They lie about what they were doing. You just see, don't tell them. They just lie, deceiving. People who don't know God lie. And people who who do know God lie, but hopefully not as much. And so it's common in the world uh, to see this. So We even have people who come to us sometimes for counseling, and they say, yeah, and they tell us all these things, and we discover later on they're lying to us. They're, they're actually covering up huge chunks of necessary information. And then we kind of bring it out, oh, oh, yeah. I forgot, don't you think that might have been? And a lot of times they want to use us as implements of revenge on people or whatever. It's very interesting. I have people cry, weeping, weeping about, I am this and I did that. And no, they're lying. Um, you know, the it happens, we're liars. Uh, but it's not Christian behavior. Lying and deceiving are clearly sins. Uh, Revelation chapter 21, verse eight says, liars will end up in the lake of fire. Um, it's not something that any Christian should be doing in general. Although there are certain conditions, certain contexts in which the Bible might give credence to uh, deception. And we'll talk about these. So you're a police officer. Um, Why are you deceiving? See, that's it. When I lie, I'm usually trying to get power, control, and advantage. I'm doing something for myself but when you're a police officer if you deceive if you uh, set up a sting if you do something i like, go undercover are you trying to hide the truth no you're trying to what bring the truth out you're trying to reveal the truth because it is being hidden but you can imagine how ineffective it would be to be you know on a stakeout and you go up to the house you're staking out knock at the door hey uh we're the police we're staking out to you know try to catch you in something wrong we just want you to know we're here because we're honest police officers You know, then the guy would never come out the front and uh, eventually they'd knock on the door and no one would be home and he'd slipped out the back window. So those are the kind of things that that go on all the time. So remember, uh, here's an example. Remember the two mothers that um, both had babies during the reign of Solomon and one during the night laid on the baby and killed it and saw that she killed her own baby. She was in so much grief. She knew another gal had had a baby. So she took her dead baby, put it next to the other woman, took the other woman's live baby and back. And in the morning, the one woman woke up and thought, this isn't my baby and it's dead. And then she saw another woman with her baby. So both of these women claimed the baby was theirs. The one, out of selfish greed and desire to have a child, uh, was willing to lie and steal And after she accidentally killed her baby. And so they brought him before Solomon. One was saying, you know, this is my baby. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. I mean, how do you tell? I mean, how do you tell? That is just a nightmare. You're thinking, oh, great. I wasn't there. No one was there. So there's a couple of women. Who knows? Well, Solomon... Was smart, so he says. Well, bring the good, the live baby here, and let's cut it in two. Now Solomon was not going to cut that baby in two, but what he knew is, is that any mother who loved their child would rather give up the child so that it could live than to have her child die so she could keep half of it. So immediately, one of the women said, "No, no, give her the baby." He says that's the mother. He used deception. In order to bring out the truth and serve justice. So there's examples like that in the scripture. Not only that. You even have God commanding deception at certain times. For instance in Joshua chapter 8 verse um, 2. You shall do to I or Ai and its king. Just as you did to Jericho and its king. You shall, shall take its spoil and its cattle, as plunder for yourself, set an ambush for the city behind it. You say, well, an ambush? Yeah, an ambush is when we come to you, and we start fighting, and then we go, oh no, they're winning. And then we run, and they go, yeah, they're fleeing, look at it. And then they all follow you, and then you come around from behind and attack them. Ambush. Deception. Gaining advantage. So, even times like that. So, the answer is, when... In certain contexts that are proved by the, there's some biblical examples, deception or leaving out part of the information would be acceptable. In the context of games that are based off of, I'm not telling you what I have, you know, I'm not telling you my stratego pieces and where, you know, my flag is so you can't get it. You know, I'm not going to say, okay, here's my flag, you can go for it. Um, You know, I'm not going to do that because the game is based off of that. That would be okay, too. But in any sort of serious... Did you lie to your father? And if they did and they say no, then that would be major serious. In our family, our kids got two hineys for that one. We would give them a spanking and then talk to them about it. And then we'd give them another one. Twice for deception. Um, So what I would encourage you to do is just you look at each situation. So if there's something in your life and you're thinking, you know, I didn't tell the person all the truth. And so am I deceiving them? Well, what is your motive? What is your goal? Do you need to tell them all the truth? You know, if you're up, I know I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. You better tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you God. So anyways, that's the answer to that one. Depends on the situation. The weight of the issue involved. All right. And let's talk about salvation. Doctrine of salvation. And I actually have a couple questions here. We're only going to be able to get to the first one. As I discovered the first service. Um, Please explain the difference between Calvinism and hyper-Calvinism. This is a very fun question. Um, this uh, This is a very fun question. First of all, you have to say, what do you mean by the term Calvinism. Because there's a lot of definitions out there. Do you mean what Calvin taught? That was according to the Bible. Or do you mean what Calvin taught? Whether it was biblical or not. Or do you mean what Calvin taught? And others say he taught. But did not. You see this is the kind of thing that is confusing. Because there are a lot of people who call themselves Calvinists. And they teach Some of what Calvin taught, but other things he didn't. So, are they Calvinists? Well, they, you know, are. By the way, Calvin would throw up if somebody called themselves a Calvinist in his presence. You're just a Christian. You're not a Calvinist. Um, But the the word has different meanings, and so you kind of have to sort that out. Many Calvinists are really too lazy to study the Bible for. Themselves, And I see this a lot with young men. What happens is they come to Christ and they're really excited and they're learning about theology. And they get a couple Reformed books and they get them and they read them down. They go, man, I'm a Calvinist. But they haven't gone through the Bible. They haven't studied the Bible. They haven't looked up all those verses in their own context and come to their own conclusion. They haven't even read Calvin. They've just read other people who call themselves Calvinists and they think they're Calvinists because they align themselves with what other people wrote, not the scriptures. But believe me, Calvin's not going to be on the throne when you get to heaven. Jesus is. So John Calvin was a great man. He was a great student of the Bible. But he was an imperfect interpreter of the word of God like everyone else. So what matters is really what the Bible teaches now, you need to understand a little bit more about, you know, this whole Calvinism thing. Because there's there's some history involved that's very helpful in understanding. So Calvin, a faithful man, teaches the Bible, teaches theology, preaches through pretty much the whole Bible. I've got 20-some volumes of sermons of Calvin. Um, so you, he, he, he does that all of his life. He's faithfully going one text after another, teaching, teaching, teaching. Well, what happens is, is after he dies, there were some his one of his opponents uh, was Jacobus Arminius, and uh, where where you get the Arminian theology, not Armenian theology, but Arminian theology, and um, Jacobus Arminius's followers had problems with some of the things that. They believed Calvin taught. So they created a document called the Remonstrance. And that was to say, hey, we don't believe in these certain things that Calvin taught. Or we think Calvin taught. So what happened is there was a synod, uh, a meeting of theological minds, to try and suss out this whole um, uh, kind of document that said we have problems with these issues. Well, there were five major issues. And that synod was held in Dort. So Calvin's gone and um, now the followers of Calvin who are followers of Beza, we'll teach about about him, he's the guy who took over for Calvin and Geneva, um, are now going to defend what Calvin taught against the followers of Jacobus Arminius. And because five of those issues were the major issues, that's where the five points of Calvinism come from. They're really the five points of Jacobus Arminius' followers and the Synod of Dorothy. They, they, there's no place where Calvin says, these are my five points that I base my system on. So the whole five points of Calvinism is really a misnomer. It's really the five points of those who opposed Calvin. It's kind of just whole twisted, but if you don't study, you don't know that. What further clouds the issue is that Beza, who was a follower of Calvin, took over for teaching uh, theology for Calvin in Geneva. He did something which at first may not seem that big of a deal. He kind of chronologized um, when he taught on salvation. He kind of taught it in a chronology in Starting in eternity past and then moving into the present, which is a common way people do it. In a lot of seminaries, I've done it myself. It's a common way you do it. So in other words, you start with eternity past, predestination, God's eternal decrees, these eternal covenants he made, and then you move into God creating the fall, you know, the law, Christ coming, the gospel being preached, established in the church, or whatever. You kind of go in a sequence, and you can see why you do it that way. It seems logical. It is logical. It's chronologically logical. The problem is, is Calvin didn't teach that way. You say, well, what difference does it make how you move the pieces around? Well, it makes this difference. One, if you start with eternity past and talk about predestination very first thing, then predestination becomes the point of your theological spear. It becomes the hub of your theological system because it's the first thing you talk about and then you try to shove everything else through this grid of predestination and election. Calvin did not do that. If you read his institutes, which is his his kind of magnum opus on what he taught in theology, there are four books or sections within his institutes. The first three deal with the gospel. God the creator and God the redeemer and how to appropriate God's grace and salvation the last book is about the church so really the first three major sections in the institutes are all about the gospel and guess where predestination and election come at the very last part of the third book. So he taught people about God, who God was, that he was a redeemer, that he was a creator. He then talked about God's plan of redemption. He talked about Christ. He talked about the gospel. And the very end, predestination election. So Calvin's system was gospel-centered. Bezos was predestination-centered. That is why if you talk to a hyper-Calvinist, they have a predestination-centered theology. And they are always talking about it. Whenever you talk about all that, they're always going back to predestination because it's, it's kind of the grid. They sift everything, and that's why they get distortions uh, and go astray from the Scriptures. So, they're always talking about predestination. And they're bold to declare the Calvin... You know, I'm a Calvinist, but they're really not Calvinistic at all. They're kind of Bezaites gone amok. So, there's many who claim to be Calvinists that are not Calvinists at all, for they don't teach what Calvin taught, the way he taught it, the order he taught it, or with the emphasis he taught it. And let me just give you an example of this. There's been great ab- debate about The Tulip Scheme, the Five Points of Calvinists. Have you ever heard about Tulip? Somebody later on. Uh, more and more recent years decided to put a tulip scheme. The word tulip stands. The first letter stands for um, uh, total depravity. So you have um, you have the each word is kind of a letter that kind of is okay. I have this tulip word. Uh, so you have okay. I have total depravity. I have unconditional election. I have limited atonement. I have irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. So each of them has their own um, little kind of. Word that relates to the five points that was written by the opponents of John Calvin that was argued at the Synod of Dort. Okay, so that's what we have right there. Now, when you talk about the atonement and limited atonement, um, you, you, you can read a lot of theologians, and um, pretty much all they're saying, all they're saying by limited atonement, is the atonement is limited in its application. To the elect and the elect only. In other words, there will be no one in hell who has received atonement for sins. Because they wouldn't be in hell if they had perfect atonement, right? If they had perfect atonement, they wouldn't be in hell. So pretty much every believes that. All the self-professing Calvinists and pretty much non-Calvinists, except for those on the lunatic fringe of the theological landscape, all believe that. So that's pretty much it. That there's sharp lines of disagreement about certain things, like the extent of the atonement or the intent of the atonement or the application of the atonement or the purpose of the atonement. Some like to approach it from what was the extent of the atonement? How many people actually get their sins atoned for? Well, the elect and the elect only. When others hear that, they hear, well, what is the extent of the death of Christ? Well, that's a whole different question than the extent of the atonement. Others hear, what is the extent of the death of Christ as far as the expiation of of sins. You think, well, what's expiation? Expiation is the appeasement, appeasement. So in other words, some will say there's a difference between what is able to be appeased by the death of Christ and what actually does get atoned for. In other words, they would say that the the atonement of Christ was sufficient for all, but it is applied only to the elect. Now, ad infinitum, ad nauseum. I mean, those go on forever and ever. I could just give you views after views, after emphasis, after emphasis, and we could just all fall asleep and petrify in our pews um, talking about how everybody tried to say, John Calvin said this, and John Calvin said that, and no, he didn't. Yes, he did. Nah, 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 nah. Um, so that's what it is. But really, kind of gets down to, uh, you know, when you get to the atonement, is, there's all these all these issues here It gets down to this when you're dealing with hyper-Calvinism and all this relates. We are going to get there. Um, It gets down to this. Did God, when he sent Christ to die, did he have a single purpose... In sending Jesus to die for the elect and the elect only, no other purpose and no purpose in relationship to the non-elect, or did he have more than one purpose, have some purposes related to the elect and some purposes related to the non-elect? That is really the issue and how it all comes down. So if you say, Jack, so, so what is hyper-Calvinism? Here it is. This is how I would define it. One, a person who follows Beza, not Calvin, who places predestination and election up front in their thinking rather than the gospel, which causes theological quirks that, to spring up, such as... Two, a hyper-Calvinist might say that God doesn't love everyone, doesn't desire that all men be saved, but only loves the elect... And so don't tell unbelievers that God loves you because he doesn't. Um, And and I just want to stop here. This is not uh, hyper-Calvinist. This is a little bit of information you need to know about this. Whenever you talk about the will of God, you need to understand there's two general categories of God's will. There's God's will as in, I am going to cause this to happen... And then there's other, there's another kind of God's will, which he prescribes, his permissive will or whatever, where he allows people to rebel against it, like what he tells us to do and not do in this book. You have an opportunity to obey God or not obey God, but he doesn't force you to do it. Okay, There are some things, like the fulfillment of prophecy, which he absolutely causes to happen. There are other things which he permits not to happen, though it's contrary to his will, his prescriptive will. And we'll tell you where to find information about this in a minute. But a hyper-Calvinist, thirdly, might say that you can't tell unbelievers that Christ died for them. Because we know from the Bible that Christ died for the elect and the elect only. So when you're sharing the gospel, just say that Christ died for sinners. But never that Christ died for you, or they shed his blood for you, or he died on the cross for you, or he bore your sins in his body on the tree. Never say that, because if you do, it might not be true, since we don't know who the elect are until after they believe. Four. Hyper Calvinists sees election and predestination as the primary doctrines upon which to build their theological system rather than the gospel. Five, a hyper-Calvinist might say that there is really no need to support missions or to evangelism because after all, God is going to save who he's going to save and nobody can thwart his will. In other words, there is an overemphasis on the sovereignty of God and a deemphasis on the responsibility of man. Instead of saying God is sovereign, absolutely sovereign, and men are responsible, and that God uses certain means to save sinners, like you and me preaching the gospel, they kind of amp up the sovereignty of God and so diminish, it's the responsibility of man that God's gonna save and to let go and let God and let him do with what we'll all get together in our own little you know hyper reformed huddle and we'll talk about theology and just let the world be saved if it gets saved. That is so far from Calvin. Calvin was a rabid evangelist and sent missionaries all over the world. And a hyper-Calvinist 6 might see only one purpose in the death of Christ, that there is no sense or purpose at all for which Christ died for the non-elect, those who wouldn't be saved. Now listen to some of the quotes. I'm just going to give you some quotes, and then you try and answer in your mind, was this something Calvin would teach or not? These are just quotes on different verses, and you think to yourself, is this a Calvinistic thing or not? And then I'll tell you at the end um, uh, what Calvin actually would teach and what he not. So these this is a little quiz, and you try to see if you can figure out uh, whether or not this is something Calvin would say. Concerning Isaiah 53 12, someone said, Christ alone before the punishment uh bore the punishment of uh many. Because on him was laid the guilt of the whole world, it is evident from other passages, and especially from the 5th chapter of the epistle of Romans, that many sometimes denotes all. Would Calvin say that Christ had laid upon him the sin and guilt of all, even the non-elect? concerning romans 5:18 someone said for through for though christ suffered for the sins of the whole world and is offered through god's kindness indiscriminately to all yet all do not receive him would calvin say that christ suffered for all and offers to all indiscriminately the gospel concerning galatians 1, verses 3 through 5, someone said, For the faithless have no profit at all by the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, but rather are so much more damnable because they reject the means God has ordained, and their unthankfulness shall be so much more grievously punished because they have trodden underfoot the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was the ransom for their souls. Would Calvin say that Christ paid... uh, the ransom for the souls of the non-elect and that Jesus shed his blood for the non-elect concerning Mark chapter 14 verses 20 through 26 someone commenting on the phrase which is shed for many said by the word many he means not part of the world only but the whole human race for he contrasts many with one as if he had said that he he will not be the redeemer of One man only, but will die in order to deliver many from the condemnation of the curse. So here, would Calvin teach that Jesus died for the entire human race, elect and non-elect, or not? Concerning 1 John 2, 2, which says, And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. You're thinking, propitiation, what is that? That is a word that means a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Someone has commented, John does indeed extend the benefits of the atonement of Christ, which has completed by his death to all the elect of God throughout all the places of the world. They may be scattered, but though the case be so, it by no means alters the fact that the reprobate or non-elect are mingled with the elect in the world. It is also a fact without controversy that Christ came to atone for the sins of the whole world. Now, would Calvin teach that he came to atone for the sins of the whole world? Now, if you were to ask a hyper-Calvinist any of those questions, they'd say, nope, 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 no. Absolutely not. Calvin would never teach any of that. But the fact is, all those quotes were from John Calvin. He did teach all those things. The problem is, if you don't read Calvin, you don't know what he taught. And so there has arisen a very um, aggressive, younger, narrow-minded, non-Calvinistic group that claims to be very Reformed and Calvinistic, which really aren't Calvinistic at all. I recently read an article from the Scottish Journal of Theology, volume 64, uh, number 3, in an article edited by Kevin Kennedy called Hermeneutical Discontinuity Between Calvin and Later Calvinism. That's a good article. It demonstrates a couple interesting things uh, that he brings out, which I just kind of approved by quoting all those verses of Calvin. Of course, I deceived you. You didn't know it was him until the end. Um, But the point is here. They said there's two things that have obviously happened. Later later reformed people who claim to be Calvinists did two things which distorted what Calvin actually believed. One, they would go to certain places in Calvin's writings to show that Calvin believed that the word all doesn't always mean every single all-inclusive all. For instance, you spill your milk and it was all over the kitchen floor. Now, does that mean it was all over every single square inch of the kitchen floor? Well, no. It means it was all over this one area. You don't mean all every floor or the whole world or every kitchen floor. Your all is defined by the context. And Calvin admits that sometimes the word all, because of the context, means all of a certain group, like the elect. No problem there. The problem is, is they take those passages where Calvin affirms that, and they try to foist it upon other passages where Calvin does not mean that. In other words, when it says that he died for all, or as a ransom for many, or, or all, uh, they'll say things like, well, the all doesn't mean all there, and even Calvin himself will tell you, and then they go to these other passages. But the fact is, as I just read, Calvin believed Christ died for all. I mean, it's beyond dispute if you read Calvin. Secondly, the other thing they did, which is related to this, is they took the word many, and they said whenever Calvin uses the word many, he, means, he doesn't mean everybody all-inclusively. But actually, when you look at how he uses many in these words, and again, I just quoted you some of the verses that use them, um, when he uses many, Calvin used it as apart from Jesus. Not all, including Jesus, but the many other than Jesus. He shed his blood for the many. We read that verse from Mark, which means according to calvin every single person in the whole world the human race the not elect and the non-elect so by taking these two assumptions which they have wrongly interpreted calvin they've then based their whole you know jesus died for the elect and the elect only this hardcore thing now this is just one example of many that we could use from the followers quote followers of john calvin who really are not the followers of john calvin So with that, we're going to stop. Next week, we're going to start out with the question that I wasn't able to get to this morning and that what is the difference between predestination and double predestination? So we will deal with that the beginning of next week. Lord willing, pray with me. Father, we are thankful to be here today and it was fun just answering some of these questions. I just pray that we would all... Be thankful um, that you are a sovereign God and that we would all be responsible to rely on your grace and do what you have asked us to do. I pray, Father, that we would not be those who are contentious and combative and fairly obnoxious and neglect our responsibility to share the gospel. That we would not make predestination the center of our theology, but the gospel. And Father, may we remember that it was given to us as an encouragement to us, not as a hammer to hit people in the head with. Father, I pray that we would also just be thankful for your saving grace. And Father, I pray that as we leave here today, we would take these truths and marvel that your word has the answers. We cannot look to government. We cannot look to men. We can't even look to theologians to give us perfect truth. But it's in the scripture and your Holy Spirit helps us understand it. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.